Hello and welcome back to Opposition Cast. It's a new year and we're starting a new series. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our Christmas special uh, with a wonderful conversation between Neil Kinnock and Peter Hennessy uh, from a few years ago. If you missed that, do make sure you go back and have a listen. There's some wonderful anecdotes there that I highly recommend. Um, we're planning to get back to regular episodes every few weeks from now with some interesting guests and topics, but do let us know what you'd like to hear. You can email us at oppositioncast at oppositionstudies.org or tweet us at oppositionuk with the hashtag oppositioncast. My guest this week is Dr Patrick Diamond, reader in public policy at Queen Mary, University of London. Patrick is a former advisor to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in Number 10 Downing Street and is chair of the policy network Think Tank. He's written extensively on British politics and policy issues and his most recent book is called The British Labour Party in Opposition and in Power, 1979-2019. to In our conversation we talked about the importance of ideas and policy to parties in opposition but I began by asking about Labour's overall electoral performance. Right, so if, if we can maybe um, just begin with some quite sort of broad brush uh, thoughts on, on opposition. Um, and this is actually an essay question for, uh, for my students. So if any of, any of them are listening and, uh, and want some expert um, thoughts on, uh, on this topic, um, they'll be particularly grateful, I think. But why is it that you think that Labour has found itself out of office uh, for so much of the last um, 100 years uh, and in the post-war period? Is there something, do you think, about... Uh, the Labour Party itself um, and its relationship to to government and to to policy and ideas that that makes it more prone to opposition or makes it more difficult for it to put itself into an election winning position. Do you think? Yeah, I know it's certainly true. And obviously, if you look at the, the the historical pattern since the Second World War, you do have these long periods in which Labour is out of office, having. Uh, lost a general election, and then it takes it a long time to recover, such that it's in a position to be a, a plausible contender for power. Um, the question of why that's the case is a really interesting one, and it it does raise the issue: is there something in the DNA of the Labour Party that makes it more prone to, you know, bloodletting and long, very unproductive periods of opposition in which it doesn't really get very far? I mean, I think one of the really striking features of the last period the period we've been going through since 2010 is that Labour's been in opposition for nearly 12 years. How many of those years has it really been making any progress towards getting back into office? Arguably, you know, not many of them. So it's it's out of power for a long time. It's engaging in very unproductive bloodletting, div internal division, um, not really any sense of um, recovering a, a position from which it can fight an election. And as you say, that's that's been a repeated pattern. And I think it does come down to something about the character of the Labour Party. Also, the fact that the Labour Party is very prone to division. I mean, it's a party that has, throughout its history, um, had deep conflicts about its ideology, its identity, its beliefs. And these really come to the surface in, in periods of opposition. And I think they contribute to that sense of, um, you know, Labour just spending these very long periods out of office. And you've written a lot about the importance of ideas, and we'll, we'll come on to that, I think, um, a bit later in, in some more detail. But do you think that <clears throat> you said that the Labour Party is sort of perhaps more ideological and has more of a sense of, um, of, of, of what it's about and, um, and, and its ideas, and therefore there are more, more scope, therefore, for, for um, conflicts over it? Um, do, do you think it's that that has distinguished it from 
than the Conservatives. Is is that a, um, a sensible distinction to make, that the Conservatives have succeeded by being pragmatic and less ideological historically? We can come on to whether that's the case now, but um, do, do you think that's, that is the distinction, that the Conservatives have been more pragmatic and the Labour Party is just inherently a more ideological party? Well, I mean, that may be overstating it, because I think that any party that has... For, for a party to be... Um, in a position to win an election in the British political system, it needs to have some ideas and it needs to have an ideological identity. I don't think it can win by being purely pragmatic and simply focused on the task of winning elections. Um, I think the issue is, does its ideology become so rigid and dogmatic and do its beliefs become so fixed that it's unable to change as times change and therefore um, it's much harder to appeal to, to a much harder to appeal to a sufficiently broad coalition of voters. I think with the Conservatives, you know, I mean, as you know, the Conservatives are not a party entirely devoid of ideology. They never have been. They've perhaps become more ideological in recent times, but they've never been devoid of ideology. What they've been able to do is use ideology perhaps in a more flexible way than Labour, which has made them a more adaptive opponent. So I certainly think that, you know, as I say, I think excessive ideology um, to beliefs that become too fixed and dogmatic you know, definitely harms a party's chance of success. And I think Labour's been more prone to that than the Conservatives historically. Mm. And, and just sort of sticking with this sort of distinguishing features of, of Labour, do you think that its origins as a party of protest, um, you know, inherently being an oppositionist party, one that was formed in order to, um, to fight the establishment, um, does that still have uh, an effect on its uh, its character now that, you know, it does often seem to me that Labour politicians seem more comfortable in opposition. Uh, it's always seems to be the case if you look at Conservative periods in opposition, they do feel like a fish out of water that, you know, the, the, the um, it feels like a, the, the, they, they assume that it's kind of a, a passing phase or that this is sort of something um, that is, upsetting the natural order of things for them to be out of government that you know they find it very difficult to be in opposition labor always seems to to find it easier to adapt to the the dynamic of opposition is is that something that it owes to its origins do you think well i think it's a very important issue um obviously labor's come an incredibly long way since it was founded um around 120 years ago so it would be a stretch to say that um, the current generations of Labour leaders and Labour figures, um, in a sense, carry that mindset with them. But there is something in the tradition of the Labour Party, which is never entirely being, being expunged, which um, does make Labour into a more oppositional force. It, it does mean that there are um, often politicians in Labour who, as you say, feel very comfortable with the rhythm of opposition, with the idea that they're there to oppose, to provide a challenge to the established order. Um, and that means that being um, in opposition can sometimes feel in, in many ways quite comfortable. Um, I think one of the criticisms of Labour during the Corbyn period would be that one of the um, signature themes of Jeremy Corbyn's period as leader of the Labour Party was that he made Labour into an even more oppositional force. It was about protest. It was about opposing things that Labour didn't like. It was about creating social movements to try to challenge the status quo. And there is a sense that, yes, perhaps there are too many figures in Labour historically who have not really felt the urge to be back in government in the way that perhaps has been the case in the Conservative Party. You know, you get the sense with Conservative politicians that 
being in government is what they just naturally expect. And when they're not in power, they're desperate to get back into government. With Labour, perhaps that doesn't exist to the same extent. And it's only been in periods of the party's history where there has been a leadership ruthlessly focused on winning. This was the case, I think, certainly with Wilson and with Blair, perhaps to a lesser extent with Attlee. But it's only in those periods when Labour's really been in, in a position to, to seriously challenge for government. So, yes, I do think there is something about the traditions, the DNA of the party, which you can't um, entirely ignore in understanding why Labour has been this party that's often been more comfortable in opposition than in power. Yes, and you mentioned um, Jeremy Corbyn there, um, the, the first of many times I'm sure we will um, mention him in any discussion of, uh, of Labour and opposition. But um, one of the things he very much struggled with was to be seen as a, a credible prime minister and to be seen as someone who could enter government. And given that the one of the most significant things that an opposition is trying to do is project itself as a, a party of government, um, that is also something that historically Labour has struggled with. Um, I mean, in recent or more recent history, um, looking at um, Neil Kinnock, um, considering that his uh, the voters just didn't think that he his face fitted as a prime minister um, and blaming himself very much for, for that very personally but also way back into history you know this this charge of there being something not quite patriotic or not quite trustworthy about Labour um, as a potential government goes right the way back to sort of you know the 1920s and the, and the 30s when it was um, uh, the main party of opposition they've always had to fight that um, that sense that they are not to be trusted with government um, and we see that I suppose all the way through now you know into Keir Starmer very explicitly putting union flags on the podium and trying to make sure that he's um, he's giving a, a break from the criticisms that were made of, of Jeremy Corbyn and his patriotism um, that's something that's also presumably distinctive about Labour's problem in in trying to convince uh, voters to trust it. Yeah I mean I think one of the other kind of structural divisions that Labour has had to deal with is that, of course, um, it's a party which is a coalition of different interests. And there's been a particular conflict historically between what you might describe as the trade union wing of the party, the parliamentary wing of the party, obviously comprising um, the MPs and leading politicians, and then, of course, the grassroots of the party in the constituencies. And one of the problems that Labour has faced is that obviously these different wings are looking for different things in, in their leaders. Um, MPs, certainly in, in modern times, have been focused quite understandably on um, having a leader who um, they can see as being a plausible contender for the premiership. And so back to your point about Jeremy Corbyn, one of the reasons why there was such an endemic conflict between the Parliamentary Party and Jeremy Corbyn was because Obviously, many MPs did not believe that Jeremy Corbyn would ever become prime minister and didn't believe that he could ever gather the votes that would be necessary for Labour to win a parliamentary majority. Um, so the MPs tend to be looking for a figure who the public would see as being a plausible prime ministerial candidate. Obviously, the grassroots of the party, which is incredibly diverse, um, can have different views. And I mean, there are some grassroots Labour members who would think like MPs that Labour needed to have a credible uh, figurehead as prime minister uh, as a potential prime minister um, but there are obviously also many other Labour Party members who think actually what we need in a leader is somebody who is principled or ethical or who gives our politics a particular identity or who is a force for social opposition in the way that Jeremy Corbyn was and and obviously reconciling the um 
the mindset, the um, interests of these different groups is very difficult. And it, I think, explains, goes some way to explaining why um, Labour has often been divided about who its leader should be. I think in many ways, you know, the Corbyn period has obviously been has obviously been recent, but the tensions that the Corbyn leadership has exposed are not recent tensions. I mean, they go back really to the founding of the Labour Party at the beginning of the 20th century. They just emerged in a new form. And to sort of go back to some of these tensions that exist between um, the desire to, to present yourself as a credible government and uh, the need to carry the party with you and to um, maintain some form of sort of ideological coherence, there is inherently, isn't there, a, a conflict between uh, having a set of, um, of beliefs and ideas that are uh, are fixed as, as part of your values as a party uh, and what those translate into in, in policy terms and having to moderate those in order to win an election if they're unpopular. Um, and this is something which, I mean, I always think it's most most sort of notable in some of the stories that Neil Kinnock tells about um, the things people used to say to him when he was trying to change the Labour Party about, um, you know, no compromise with the electorate and, uh, you know, and accusing him of having, uh, my favourite one is that, you know, he was accused of, of having court electionitis, um, you know, the, this unhealthy preoccupation with with cap capturing votes, which, as he said, you know, if you're the leader of a major political party, you are, that, that's your job is to is to collect votes. But, you know, there is a tension there, isn't there? If you're, um, and I think the Conservatives perhaps struggled with this um, after 1997 when they didn't really fundamentally think that anything had to change about their beliefs. Um, but there is a tension there. If, you're, if you've been defeated in an, in an election on policies that you fundamentally believe in and you have to then go through a process of trying to appeal to the electorate, you have to change. And so there is always going to be that attack on you that you're compromising and you're... Uh, you're bending your beliefs in order to fit with, you know, a populist mood or what the what the voters want. I mean, how how do you resolve that as a party between being seen as being in some way cynical, um, or you know, and and the idea that actually it's that that's what democracy is all about? Yeah, I mean, it is hard to do, and it's certainly true that in the context of Labour, this is something that the party has always struggled with. I think there is an issue, particularly for the party that. Um, being seen to accommodate change or to be overly pragmatic or to be willing to adapt your policies in response to electoral failure are seen as almost inherently corrupt acts. It's not just that you're changing the party in the wrong way, it's that you're corruptly being, you're willing to sacrifice your most basic beliefs for electoral benefit. This is seen as um, something which is, you know, very morally questionable. Um, and that's why you get such vitriol directed at Labour leaders who do it. I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, if you look at the experience of Neil Kinnock and compare it to Tony Blair, Neil Kinnock suffered absolutely, as you said, because he was seen as a leader who was willing to do anything and say anything in order to win. Whereas Tony Blair, who in some ways was more pragmatic and changed the policies of the party even more radically, was never seen as being um, as... Um, willing to accommodate and bend his beliefs um, and didn't suffer in the same way as Kinnock did from the charge of being overly pragmatic and tactical and so on. So that, that was a huge difference. And um, I think it explains some of the, um, the, the, um, the, the reasons why Kinnock was less successful than Blair, obviously. Mm. Yes, I mean, there does seem, 
perhaps surprisingly, to be more vitriol directed from some quarters at, at Kinnock than than there is against Tony Blair. I think the some of the um, early attacks on on Blair from the Conservatives, particularly, if you think of the sort of um, demon eyes um, uh, posters and the campaign that the Conservatives ran in, in 1997, um, there was the famous uh, uh, advert that never got aired because John Major vetoed it. I don't know if you know about this one, which was that it was the sort of the Faustian pact. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't believe it, just say it. Um, and that was sort of a rehash of that idea that, you know, he'll say anything or do anything to, to win an election. Whereas actually, as it turned out, he actually had changed his um, his his beliefs and was actually committed to what he was saying, um, which is, as you say, a different attack to what, what Kinnock faced. Um, but moving on to, to New Labour, um, I mean, you've written quite a lot about how um, history and sort of prevailing consensus on on New Labour has has got it wrong. Um, do you want to say a bit about sort of what you think is are the main um, flaws in in how most people view the New Labour project for, as an opposition sort of force? Well, I think the main point I would make links to what you were just saying, which is that the the charge against New Labour is that it was a pragmatic. Um, project primarily driven by electoral imperatives that was really about repositioning Labour within the electoral marketplace in order to end this sequence of defeats that Labour had suffered since the late 1970s. Now, of course, there is some truth in that perspective, but for me, it only captures very partially what New Labour was about. And one of the arguments that I've made is that you have to also consider New Labour as an intellectual project. Um, and I think that that has several layers to it. I mean, one layer is New Labour as an intellectual project, which is about trying to adapt and renew the tradition of social democracy within the Labour Party. So trying to think about the left, um, where it goes in the future, how it responds to the fact that many of its key policies and also beliefs were seen to be increasingly irrelevant by um, the 1980s and 1990s, you know, what to do about the obsolescence of nationalisation and public ownership as a way of managing um, the economy, how to think about new ways of strengthening the welfare state, given the fact that the beverage settlement appeared to have run out of steam, all of those kinds of issues. Um, but I think above and beyond that, there was also, in a sense, the need for new labour to adapt intellectually um, because of broader changes going on in, in, in society and politics in the 1990s. I mean, I think the, the end of communism in Eastern Europe, the major geopolitical shifts that were underway, the kind of economic transition that we describe as globalization. I mean, all of these changes required the center left to think very differently about the world and how to affect change within it. So my very simple point really is that we can't just understand New Labour as an electoral project. We also have to understand it as an intellectual endeavor. And you, you know, you have to take its ideas seriously, even if you don't always like them. Mm. And how much do you think it it owes, or how does how does it compare to previous um, periods in which the party was sort of reinventing itself and re renewing its ideas? I mean, I'm thinking particularly um, another sort of um, essay question, Claxon, really. Um, but 1956 and the sort of the future of socialism, um, you know, there was a uh, you know quite a substantive debate. Um, during the, the 50s, during a long period of conservative um, administration of Labour in opposition, really going back to have some quite um, difficult 
debates and conversations about what it meant to to, to be um, socialist at that time. Um, and you know, there's there's also then this, as we talked about the, the Neil Kinnock um, reforms and the the eighties, um, and then on into the nineties and, and Tony Blair. H how do you think that the New Labour project compares to those previous? periods of renewal and renewal particularly of ideas well i think it's, it's definitely the case that there are some uh similarities i think particularly with the rethinking going um on in the um 1950s and early 1960s i think one particular similarity was that obviously in the 1950s um labor was having to come to terms with a society that was being refashioned by the growth of post-war affluence so the wartime agenda which Labour had really been addressing when it came to power in 1945, the need to complete this process of post-war reconstruction, um, no longer had obviously the relevance um, that it had um, when Attlee came to power in 1945, and these new challenges were emerging, the growth of affluence, the growth of prosperity, changes within the working class, and so on, meant that Labour had to think very differently about questions around ownership, redistribution, equality, the future of the welfare state. And that's what Crossland did, of course, in his famous book um, published in 1956, The Future of Socialism. Um, and in many ways, I think what Labour was doing in the 1980s and 1990s was not dissimilar. Um, obviously, you'd have the Thatcher governments in power, um, and there had been a major process of economic change again, um, the process of deindustrialization, big changes in the economic structure, um, similar, similarly dramatic changes in the nature of the working class, all of which were eroding the traditional electoral base of the Labour Party, but also making many of its policies and programmes less relevant. So um, there was, again, a need for major rethinking. I think one contrast, if I could just make this point as well, um, though, between the two periods is that it is undoubtedly the case that the the revisionists of the 1950s and 1960s um, were thinking in a very intellectually rigorous way about the consequences of changes and what they would mean for the future of socialism and social democracy. I think a charge that's been made against new labor is that in some ways perhaps its, its um, approach was less intellectually rigorous, less thoroughgoing than that of figures like Crossland and Gateskill. I'm not sure I would completely agree with that accusation, but I think there's something in it that in perhaps in some ways Labour's process of rethinking in the 1990s was to a degree more superficial and could have been and perhaps should have been more far-reaching. But as I say, I think there are still some important similarities. Yes, and you know, it, as a project, I mean, in, in opposition and in government, it had a pretty good run of sort of 16 years um, until the 2010 um, general election. Um, and you've written a bit about the the sort of contested legacy of of New Labour, but in terms of that transition from government into uh, opposition, uh, there did seem to be firstly under Ed Miliband to a degree, but then very much uh, under uh, the with the election of Jeremy Corbyn, um, a, a very conscious backlash against what was seen as being the legacy of, of New Labour um, for the Labour Party. Um, and again, there are some similarities there, aren't there, with the sort of the 1980s and a, a, a sort of a reversion to what was seen to be a, a, a sort of by those on the left as a purer form of um, of, of belief. <clears throat> Is that inevitable when you have a party losing office and um, and having that kind of 
uh, internal debate and whether are, are those factions entrenched. Is there something inevitable about the fact that however a party has um, has governed, it's going to face that kind of um, backlash from its party in opposition, that those ideas are going to be thrown out and there's going to be that sort of over overcompensation? Um, it may well be inevitable. I think it's certainly true that both in the um, in the 1980s and again after the 2010 defeat, the the central um, feature of the leaderships that then emerged in the Labour Party was that they wanted to repudiate Labour's period in government. I mean, obviously, this was very much the case in the early 1980s because key figures at that time, like Tony Benn, believed that in government Labour had, you know, failed to um, enact its program because um, it it had willingly conspired with the civil service um, and other parts of the state not to carry through a radical socialist agenda. In the 20, post-2010 period, the criticism was somewhat different, but it was a similar scale of repudiation. And um, under Ed Miliband's leadership, and then obviously also under Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the accusation was that Labour had conspired with neoliberalism in government. This had meant that it had failed to regulate, for example, the financial sector um, adequately, and hence you'd had the financial crisis of 2008. I think perhaps one difference, though, is that um, given the scale of the financial crisis um, in the late 2000s and the impact which it had on um, Labour's programming government, and also the accusation that Labour had indeed failed to properly regulate the financial services sector, always meant that when Labour was defeated in 2010, it was going to have to confront um, that legacy. And I think in some ways it's understandable that it struggled to come up with a, a kind of convincing and plausible synthesis of what it got right and what it got wrong in government. I mean, even as somebody who was involved in Labour governments after 1997, I wouldn't argue for a second that what you could do after 2010 was just simply assert that everything Labour did in government was fantastic and you just had to bang on and on about its positive achievements. Labour clearly had to recognise the things that it got wrong. It had to um, enter into a serious audit of what it did in government well and what it did less well, what it got wrong, as well as it got as well as what it got right. Um, but it struggled to do that. It rather it, it, it just went too far towards complete repudiation. Um, and of course, in many ways, what it's done is obscured the many achievements that Labour had in office. And that has in some ways actually damaged um, the credibility of the Labour brand um, within the electorate, if you're going to get back into power, you have to convince people that, you know, Labour can provide a good government. And one way of doing that is to show that when it's been in government before, it's done important and useful things. So, you know, the, the, the strategy of entire repudiation does not work, even if it's understandable that at times the party has gone in that direction. Mm. Um, and then sort of when you're confronted with the, the job of, of opposition and you're looking ahead to sort of the future election, um, you've got really two jobs as an opposition. You've got, on the one hand, you're there to bash the government and to um, expose their failings and, and try and make uh, as much capital out of that as you, as you can. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got to present yourself as being a credible alternative. Part of that, as we talked about earlier, was about credibility and whether you're seen as a, a credible alternative government. But there's also your policy programme. You have to have some degree of, um, of a, a narrative and a story about what you will do in office. Um, how easy is it for a party to to put that together as a as a credible prospectus um and and how important is it i mean there you could argue to a degree that um 
the sort of the, the offer to the electorate at various elections um, has varied enormously in the sort of specifics of what's actually been put forward. Some some of them, uh, you know, in 1997 in um, the, the Labour pledge cards were fairly modest pledges um, on which they campaigned. There may, of course, as, as you say, have been a lot more behind that in terms of what the party believed. But the signals to the electorate and the offer is, is, is perhaps um, much more limited. And it comes back to this question, a phrase I'm always citing which is the Churchill's um, distinction between a lighthouse and a shop window um, you know on the one hand there's the idea that you you just set a direction and, um, and and signal sort of the kind of direction of policy without laying out too many specifics and on the other hand you can lay out everything and in, in a lot of detail um, and you know one is perhaps um, you know not 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 as successful as the other but in terms of the job of actually putting together a credible and coherent policy program um, what are the challenges to a party that's, that's lost an election? Is it possible to do that within five years? If you're looking at uh, Ed Miliband's um, time as leader of the opposition, he had five years to try and come back from a fairly heavy defeat to win an election. Um, there's a lot of work that has to go into doing that. And is that really credible? Or is it by necessity going to take longer than that? Uh, yeah, it's a very um, important question. I think, by the way, that the question throws light also on a key development that, that took place in the 80s and 90s in the sense that although we focus a lot on Labour and the way that it changed its policies and the radical process of rethinking that went on around its programme, in many ways, actually, what Labour was doing in that period was not so much radically changing its policies, although obviously that was part of it, but it was also just simply ditching policies and really clearing out a lot of what was perceived to be, you know, the excessive commitments in its program. Um, it was trying to create a much simpler, um, more recognisable set of commitments, ones that were more electorally friendly, also trying to um, deal with the baggage of policies that Labour was still committed to, which could be used against it in, a, in an election. So I think a lot of the process of electoral renewal that we see as being radically changing policies is, is actually often simply about getting rid of policies. Um, Kinnock started to do that in the 87-89 period through the policy review, then obviously Tony Blair carried on um, through the 1990s, such that by 1997, um, the manifesto that Labour was putting forward was, as you've already inferred, um, in many ways a very lean document that had a number of core messages, um, some very specific commitments around improving education and health, obviously also crucially promising not to raise the basic or higher rate of income tax, which New Labour saw as being a very important commitment. So it was um, a sellable package that was very much framed as this is what a Labour government could achieve in four or five years, um, you know, not making commitments that you weren't going to deliver and certainly not having hostages to fortune in the manifesto. Um, and so um, a political party that's going to win an election has to do that, but it also has to have, as you say, um, a vision, a, a view about how it's going to govern, which isn't so much about specific policies, but is more of a mindset or, of, or a, a kind of governing um, synthesis, a governing uh, logic, which is going to apply in any given situation. Now, Labour had that in 97 because it had this view about combining, you know, there are different ways of expressing it, about bringing together economic efficiency and social justice, about combining the dynamism of markets with active government. Um, but it had a sort of broad view about how you need, needed to do domestic policy, certainly. Um, and that's what Labour needs this time. It doesn't need so much, you know, 40 detailed policies across the landscape of economic and social policy. It needs a broad synthesis about how it would approach these questions. What would its, what would its instincts be 
um, in terms of how it's um, carried out domestic policy. That's really what the electorate, I think, wants to know. What, what are your core instincts? And that's what you've got to work out. But in terms of your question, doing that in five years is indeed very difficult. And although I think there was perhaps in some quarters surprise that Ed Miliband wasn't more successful in 2015, um, in reality, moving Labour from the defeat of 2010 to outright, outright victory in 2015 would have been extremely difficult in any circumstances. Um, I think it's not surprising that obviously Ed Miliband didn't succeed. Mm. But then after 2015, um, rather than having uh, another leader sort of committed to um, moving the party to the mainstream and, uh, and building on that, uh, that platform we had the the very surprising election of jeremy corbyn um, and i think perhaps looking back it's it you know we have to remind ourselves what an absolute um sort of shock that was uh, if you go back to the you know the the days after the the 2015 election um and i told somebody that well, in the upcoming election you know jeremy corbyn's going to win it would have seemed seemed absolutely incredible um and you know during the course of that leadership election sort of the idea sort of gradually grew in in sort of credibility until it actually happened. Um, what, what's your reading of looking back on it? How did it happen? Um, and and in terms of the Labour Party and 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 how we were talking earlier about its its sort of character, um, you know, what what explains the Corbyn phenomenon and how that that happened to a party that um, you know had had five years before been in government and had arguably already um, as you just just um talked about had sort of repudiated its period in government but then went to the far extremes of of, of completely repudiating it oh it's an excellent question and i think you're absolutely right that we tend now to take the corbyn period for granted but in many ways corbyn's leadership victory in 2015 was a remarkable and actually largely unanti largely unanticipated political shock um which you know very few people predicted and I think that was partly because the, there was a view that um, the new Labour period had permanently reshaped the party. You know, Labour had become a very different party, um, partly through internal institutional changes, the weakening of the role of the trade unions, the change in the balance of power between the leadership and the grassroots of the party. All of this meant that Labour had been, you know, permanently reshaped. And so the chances of a figure from the far left are uh, coming to power um, gaining the leadership seemed very remote. So the fact that um, Corbyn was able to achieve that is, you know, in any circumstances, a quite remarkable historical event. Why did it happen? Well, I think there are two ways of approaching this question. I mean, one is, of course, to emphasise contingency. I mean, as you know, um, in fact, during Ed Miliband's leadership, there were some changes made to the Electoral College and the process for electing the party leader which were, of course, very helpful to Jeremy Corbyn. And he was further assisted by the fact that MPs who were clearly not Corbynites nominated him, which is why Jeremy Corbyn got on the leadership ballot paper in the first place, in contrast to other figures like John McDonnell and Diane Abbott, who'd struggled to do that in the previous few years. Um, so I think contingency in terms of the change in the election, um, in, the, in the process for electing the leader and the Electoral College was clearly a factor. But there were also changes in the environment around the party, a sense of frustration, perhaps, that the Miliband years had not been more productive, um, a sense that Labour in opposition was not making any headway against the Conservative government, which, of course, had gone from being only in a coalition after 2010 to gaining an absolute majority in 2015. I think that may have also fueled what you were talking about towards the beginning of our discussion, 
around the oppositional mindset of Labour, that Labour felt that, you know, there were these terrible policies being carried out, um, austerity, cuts in the public sector, reductions in the size of government, which from the perspective of many Labour Party members were very harmful. And this um, just further intensified the oppositionalist mindset of the party, the sense that what Labour really needed to do was to challenge the status quo, challenge the Conservative government, challenge the established order. And for many party members, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was obviously a very credible figurehead um, to do that. The other thing I would just say quickly is that, of course, the other reason why he won was because he was up against other contenders in 2015 who were just not seen by the party as being you know, sufficiently vigorous, politically interesting, sufficiently innovative, such that they wanted to stick with a more mainstream moderate candidate. Um, and you can't ignore that factor. Um, certainly watching the hustings in um, that period, I remember very well party members commenting that you know, Jeremy Corbyn seemed to be the only candidate who had something new to say, something fresh to say, something different. Um, that was obviously also clearly a factor. So I think all of these came together to create this extraordinary historical event, which um, I, I wouldn't say it would be, un, you know, we can't say it will never happen again, but it was certainly unanticipated and in the history of the Labour Party, um, you know, continues to be to be a remarkable event. Mm. There's something perhaps about sort of being a, an insurgent, which gives you um, an advantage in, in in an election of any sort. And as you say, the, the other contenders being quite uh, careful and um, and with a small C conservative in their um, in their prospectus. You, you then have someone who is completely unbound by the, the, the need to look credible um, and it somehow perhaps um, makes them um, more interesting as a as a character um, but we, we then have the sort of the Corbyn leadership and um, and I think we could perhaps characterize it as um, as being sort of emphasizing as you said the oppositionist nature of um, of opposition over a you know desire to have a credible platform um, but with the defeat in, in 2019, he um, resigned. And I think the expectation perhaps was that it would be much more difficult for the party to move on from that, given the changes to the, the membership of the party and to the structures, um, control of the NEC and all of the things that um, had, had gone uh, alongside the Corbyn leadership. Um, were you surprised by how easily it seemed that um, firstly that um, Keir Starmer won the election but also in in the time since then that the Corbyn years have really been rolled back and indeed Jeremy Corbyn is, is now no longer an, a Labour MP but have you been surprised by how easy it was given uh, the past experience of trying to win these battles with the far left that the Labour leadership has has faced was that a surprise to you? Well, it certainly was a surprise. I mean, I think it's worth remembering as well that obviously Keir Starmer has had to play a, a very clever political game. Um, I mean, when he stood for the leadership in um, 2019, when you look at the leadership pledges that he put forward, he was not presenting himself as a continuity Corbyn candidate, but he was certainly suggesting that many of the core policies that Jeremy Corbyn had introduced, um, you know, the opposition to austerity, the opposition to aspects of New Labour's foreign policy, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, the need to defend the welfare state and so on. Um, these were all policies that Keir Starmer suggested he would be quite comfortable in continuing. And that's, I think, one of the explanations as to why 
he won such a convincing victory, he was able to bring together a coalition of different members across the party, some of whom had never been reconciled to the Corbyn leadership, others who were much more sympathetic to Corbyn's politics, um, but who recognised that Labour needed a fresh start, needed to rethink after another election defeat in 2019. In many ways, I think what Keir Starmer was offering was competence, a more credible leadership platform, but continuing some of the key policies that Jeremy Corbyn had put in place in the previous period. Obviously, what's happened since then in, in the two or so years since Keir Starmer took over is that it does appear that he is moving in a much more concerted way um, away from the Corbyn position on policy, on how the party is managed, on the internal management of issues like anti-Semitism. The party, as you say, seems to now be a very long way from the time in which Jeremy Corbyn um, ran it. And I think that's in part because um, Keir Starmer has recognised that if Labour is going to be um, in with a chance of winning the next election, the process of change has to be much more thoroughgoing and far-reaching than um, simply sticking with the policies that Corbyn had in 2019 or 2017. In addition to that, of course, I think, and this comes back to the, the nature of opposition, um, one of the reasons why Labour is moving in this direction is because there is a growing sense in the party that Labour has just has been in opposition, obviously, far too long. I mean, it's now approaching its 12th year in opposition. Um, if it's going to get back into government anytime soon, then it's clear that it, it's going to have to change significantly. Um, and so I think that, you know, this appetite to win, this um, instinct to, to recover your position electorally, obviously, the longer you're in opposition, the stronger that becomes. I think it's one of the reasons why... Kinnock was able to drive through some of the changes in the late 80s and early 90s, and it was certainly obviously to the benefit of Tony Blair. Um, I think there is some of that returning also to the benefit of Keir Starmer. Mm. Yes, and you say that there is more of a recognition, um, perhaps, that that sense of an appetite for, for power sort of returning to, to the party after to 12 years. Um, but you have had this almost... Um, sort of lost five years in a sense of the Corbyn years during which you know a, a huge amount of what we would expect to see of a party recovering and certainly what we saw under the, the Kinnock leadership um, you know nine years of Neil Kinnock in the 80s uh, during which he he did the sort of the hard slog of um, of as you say ditching unpopular policies winning fights with the far left and so on um, th there has not been that progression since 2010 there's been sort of five years they've been lost so there is an argument for saying that Keir Starmer was kind of back to square one um in uh in 2020 when he he won so um in, we talked about Ed Miliband having the difficulty of trying to come up with those ideas and mount that credible challenge within five years presumably that's also now where Keir Starmer finds himself as well because he's also have, having to reinvent um, a, a a credible platform in the aftermath of um, of the Corbyn leadership um, is that something which is going to provide um, more of a challenge, or or do you think that in a sense he can build on by ignoring the Corbyn years, can build on perhaps some of the experience of the Miliband uh, leadership and sort of just pick up where perhaps that that project ended, um, and and perhaps get a bit more of a head start in terms of developing um, policy uh, and ideas there. I think it's absolutely true that um, the Starmer leadership is motivated by a sense that um, 
change has to happen quickly across multiple fronts and that these changes have to happen simultaneously. I think when you're reforming a party, and to some extent this is reflected in the Kinnock period, you go through sequences. So you spend a period of time focusing on organisational and institutional changes that are more internal. And then you probably move through into a phase when you're thinking more about the electorates, but you're also thinking about changing your policies and your programme and your ideological position. Um, Keir Starmer doesn't really have time to operate in that kind of sequence way. He has to do all of those things simultaneously. So you saw at the Labour Party conference last year, him, uh, Keir Starmer proposing a major rule change in how the Labour leader is elected, signalling um, that the party is going to continue to change its organisation in the post-Corbyn era. Um, but you obviously also saw him putting forward new policies, a new, a new vision, a new position in terms of how Labour would deal with the challenges of the pandemic, but also move on um, the debate about the economy and so on. So he's having to change the organisation and rethink at the same time. That is very difficult. It's very, very challenging to do that well. Um, I think it's necessary just because, you know, as you pointed out, Labour's really had five wasted years in opposition. So it's necessary to move at this speed and this intensity, but it's very difficult to do it. I think on the point about Ed Miliband, my sense is that for a period, Keir Starmer did indeed draw on some of the ideas that were put forward in the Ed Miliband period. And of course, um, Ed Miliband also became a prominent figure within the shadow cabinet, had this role as business secretary and also responsibility for climate change. Um, his position in the shadow cabinet seems to have been to some degree downgraded. And I also sense that Keir Starmer is not really building particularly on the ideas that were developed in the um, in the Ed Miliband period, he seems to be actually in, in a way going back to um, focusing much more on the on the Brown Blair agenda of, of the 1990s, not not trying to repeat it, but at least learn the lessons from it. Um, so I think on, you know, on different fronts, Starmer is starting to move in a, in a very distinctive direction. And I, and I think, you know, in many ways, he, he himself clearly thinks that the last 11 or 12 years, not just the Corbyn period, but also the Miliband period, haven't moved Labour on enough. And so therefore, you know, he's going to think very differently. He's going to behave and operate very differently to the way that they did. Mm. And and perhaps finally, we're, we're recording this sort of on a day where we've seen sort of high political drama of a defection of a um, Conservative MP to the Labour Party, which is the first time that's happened in, um, I think, getting on for 15 years or so. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing... Um, the government, uh, the Conservative government, under a lot of pressure and um, opinion poll leads showing Labour significantly ahead. Um, in that in that sort of environment, the the prospect of a Labour government looks a lot more likely at the next election than than it did even a few months ago, when the established conventional wisdom was that it was going to be too much for Labour to win the next election and that the Conservatives were nailed on. Um, how much does that change the dynamic of opposition when you have a party um, that is seen as being much more credible electorally? Um, and, and what does that do to the, the sort of balance that we were talking about earlier between just bashing the government and trying to make as much political capital as you can um, and the sort of more considered job of presenting a um uh, a sort of credible policy platform does it make any changes to the calculation that you have to make between those two jobs well it's certainly you know the sense of um internal political morale within labor will be um you know will be massively boosted by by the events of um 
recent days, including obviously this defection. Um, and it contributes to the sense, as you were suggesting, that Labour is much closer to power than at any time, really, in, certainly for the last in the last decade. Um, and this all um, goes to contribute to a sense of confidence. Um, you know, the shadow cabinet will feel more confident because they've been taken more seriously. Um, Labour will be taken more seriously. Um, people will want to talk to Labour. You know, the business community will want to talk to the Labour Party about its proposals, what it's planning. Labour will be taken seriously in all sorts of um, different quarters. And so, you know, absolutely, um, that what that does to the party's sense of morale and, and its sense of, of direction is, is clearly, you know, hugely important. And it also reinforces the appetite to win. I mean, I think that the appetite to win is, is obviously increased by the sense that you've got more chance of actually winning. One of the difficulties, you know, that Labour had in 2015 was it, that it went backwards. And I think, as we were discussing, that partly explains why you saw this shift to Corbyn. But if, you, if the party begins to feel that actually it is now, it has a serious chance of winning, then that's going to change the internal calculation. It's going to mean that perhaps people who are more sceptical about Starmer's chances will, will be much more tempted to back him, and that will contribute to the sense of confidence around his leadership. I think the one challenge which I just mentioned quickly is that, of course, what all of this will also do is it will increase the scrutiny of Labour and what it's planning. Um, so particularly in, in areas like economic policy and tax, um, obviously voters, but also journalists, are going to be looking much more closely at what Labour's saying. Um, so it's going to have to make sure that its plans, its ideas, its policies are able to withstand that kind of scrutiny. I think, you know, in some ways, um, you know, it's been argued that uh, Jeremy Corbyn did rather better in 2017 than many um, commentators had expected because there wasn't very much serious scrutiny of Labour's programme. Um, given that many people thought it had no chance of winning the election. Um, it's probably not going to be like that for Keir Starmer at the next general election. Labour's going to be seen as a serious contender. Its policies will be very seriously scrutinised. And so that's going to be a, a challenge for Labour in opposition, which, which it's obviously going to have to rise to. Great. Well, I'm sure we'll see um, quite a bit more drama in the remaining uh, few years of this parliament. Uh, I think what we've learnt at least in the last um, 10 years, is never to rule out anything um, in politics. But um, Patrick, thanks very much indeed for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Patrick Diamond there from Queen Mary University of London. My thanks to him for joining me on the podcast. And that's all for this episode. It's good to be back. I hope you'll keep listening as we return to regular uploads in the coming weeks. As I said at the top of the programme, do let us know if you have any ideas for guests or topics, email us uh, at oppositioncast at oppositionstudies.org or tweet us at oppositionuk using the hashtag oppositioncast. Do make sure you've subscribed so you get notified when we release new episodes and do please give us a positive review or rating to help other people find the podcast. So my thanks again to Patrick Diamond for joining us, to our research assistant Iman Abdulhaq for helping produce the podcast and to Tom Hector for our theme music. We'll be back for another episode soon, but until then, thanks for listening, look after yourselves, and until we meet again, goodbye. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. It's presented by me, Nigel Fletcher, and you can find us online at oppositionstudies.net forward slash oppositioncast.